0: Everybody gets a piece, we're going Welcome back to the Alco's Mainstream podcast. We have a special episode today. It's a collaboration between Alco's Mainstream and Venture Unlocked. Samir Kaji, the co-founder of Allocate and the Venture Unlocked podcast, and I have a back and forth discussion about the future of private markets and venture. If you're an allocator to private markets or a VC fund manager, you won't want to miss this. Samir co-founded Allocate to enable the wealth management community to be able to access high-quality venture funds in the same way institutions have for years. He draws upon a background of 22 years in venture banking at First Republic and Silicon Valley Bank, where he worked closely with and advised over 700 venture capital and private equity firms. He completed over $12 billion in structured debt transactions and has invested in a number of funds and companies. Samir also completed the Kauffman Fellows Venture Program and is an active writer and podcaster with Venture Unlocked. We cover everything from the business of venture to how VC funds have turned into platforms, much like private equity and what this means for the industry. We discuss how LPs can approach venture in this dynamic market and why VC should be included in many investors' portfolio construction. Note that this podcast was recorded before the Silicon Valley Bank News, so we did not cover this topic on this show. If you like this podcast, you can listen or read more about alts by subscribing at altgoesmainstream.substack.com, and you can find Samir's podcast at Venture Unlocked. We're here to talk about venture today, Samir. I'm excited. So much going on. Yeah. Let's start to unpack this because if you think about the venture space, incredible bull market over the past few years, and then we're here today, public markets have changed. That's changed private markets in respect to valuations, in respect to funding environment, in respect to LPs and how much they're allocating due to the denominator effect and other things. What's the state of venture right now? I mean, it's a great place to
1: start, and there's so much meat on that bone to talk through. So let's talk about what happened and kind of give a little bit of background. I've been in the venture market for the better part of 24 years. This is my third cycle that I've not seen. But let's take a look at what happened to get us to this position first. Starting in 2008, we had a number of things happen that really acted as cyclical tailwinds. Number one, 08 to 2022, you had interest rates that were effectively zero. So March of 08 to March of 2022, you had four rounds of QE along with fiscal policy during the pandemic. On top of that, you had the technology super cycle of mobile and cloud. And so what we saw during a long extended period was a period of absolute growth that we've never seen before. The longer that went on, people became more risk-on. Venture funds started to get bigger, technology companies were getting these bigger valuations. And that all came to a peak in 2021, right? So 2021 is a year after the pandemic started, we saw 10 trillion dollars pumped into the system, as well as rates going to zero almost overnight. Of course, that created inflation. And when it became clear that that inflation rate was not transitory, The Fed had to take a a hard stance, and we saw in 2022 the fifth biggest year in history in terms of absolute Fed rate increases. What we all found out is that interest rates actually do matter when it comes to the venture market because you see the repricing in the public markets. If you look at 2021, public market fintech was 25x. Today, it's about 5x. So that's all permeated now into the venture market. So let's talk a little bit about venture market. Obviously, in 2022, deployment slowed. Investors on the LP side, big institutions, saw their big drawdowns in their public equities portfolio, which left them over-allocated to venture, so they had to pull back. And we had one of the most violent reversions that we've ever seen since really 2000, 2001.
0: So a few things to unpack in there. One is we obviously have currently an incredibly different fundraising environment. There's a Wall Street Journal article yesterday that said this past quarter, venture funding, new dollars into venture funds hit nine-year low. So that's interesting. But then at the same time, over the past two years, funds have raised large funds. So different from maybe 2008, 2009, where there wasn't as much dollars into venture Today, you have more dollars the venture than ever before on an absolute basis. And yet, you still have, obviously, this low relative to the past nine years. What does that mean for the venture ecosystem? Because dollars still need to get deployed. Sure, maybe funds raising now have a harder time, but there's funds. NEA raised a $6 billion fund. Signal Fire raised a $900 million fund. The list goes on and on. What does that mean for the venture ecosystem right now?
1: And just from a statistical standpoint... 2021 and 22, you saw 150 billion raised by venture funds in the U.S., which going back to 2009 is about almost 10x what we saw in 2009. So you're correct in those dollars need to be deployed at some point. We talk about this concept of dry powder. Now, what we're seeing, though, is a couple of things. So series B and later, the market has completely slowed down and in, in some cases, completely paused. Now, companies still can get funded, but it's going to be under a very different valuation environment. And the type of measures that investors are looking at are not just top-line growth. It's the sustainability, the viability of the company, gross margins, all things that map back to fundamentals. So dry powder will be deployed, but it's going to be deployed over a longer period of time. This is not a 2020-21 cycle where you had some firms, which we won't name, that deployed about a billion dollars a month into startup companies. And so now that one- to two-year deployment period is going to extend out to three to four years. I still think we haven't seen a lot of markdowns. I think that there's still a big bid-ask spread between late stage of what investors want, what founders are willing to take. And so a lot of those rounds are going to be pushed out to 2023, 2024, and maybe even 25 in certain cases. As companies, number one, do whatever they can to weather this storm. Cut burn. We've seen so many layoffs within the tech industry. I think the last I saw was about 230,000 layoffs. But at some point, these companies have to come back to market. And what we're likely going to see is a flight to overall quality. So companies that are doing really well will get the abundance of those dollars. And so you see more concentration of dollars, just as you saw in 2022 in venture funds. On the venture fund side, 150 billion was raised per year, but the number of funds. That were backed by that $150 billion nearly halved in 2022.
0: Do you think that the returns will go down in venture because more dollars will be aggregated into the quality companies, which means they'll be well-funded, they'll probably do well. But generally speaking, as more capital goes into a space, returns go down. Sure, the risk-reward may be different. But does that change how you think both GPs and LPs will think about returns? If you look at the period
1: going forward, I think we can probably agree with some level of rationality that the tailwinds that we saw over the last 14 years outside of 2022 are unlikely to replicate themselves. I don't expect 14 years of zero interest rates. I don't expect trillions of dollars to be pumped into the system. Now, again, we don't know what's going to happen. If you look at the return profile of firms, from 2000 to 2007, the returns actually weren't very good in venture. Now, this is early days of cloud, pre-mobile, right? So it's a very different environment. From 08 to 2020, the returns were great. I don't think it's gonna be as bad as 2000 to 2007, nor as good as it was from 2008 to 2000, let's call it 20. Ultimately, we think it's gonna land somewhere in the middle, and if you look at the long-term average of top quartile venture, In the mid-20s is what people should expect, but I think gone are the days where you look at top quartile venture, which we've seen over the last 10, 12 years, being 40% plus. I just don't think that's a reasonable target to set going forward, but again, 25%, still a significant premium over what people historically have gotten in the public markets.
0: Are there places where you think investors can get the 40 plus percent IRR and this may get into fund sizing because your fund size dictates your strategy. Smaller funds generally tend to have a better chance at generating outsized returns because one big winner creates outsized returns. What is your thought on where there are places to still get very large returns?
1: Going back, I think you make a good point of Where can you invest generate alpha? Over the last decade, decade and a half, you could play the beta game, you'd do really well. I don't think you can play the beta game going forward. So number one, I think there are areas of stability within venture where you can still generate alpha through proper manager selection. You think about smaller fund sizes and everyone talks about smaller fund sizes. I would put IR aside for a second and actually focus on cash on cash returns. What type of fund offers me the higher ability to get extreme alpha on the upside. What we've seen in the past is we have seen fir- firms get the 10X, the 20X, even 300X firms, which fund has generated that going back, I think it was a 2009 vintage. But ultimately, if you look at the Burgess data, Burgess data was very clear, 2,400 funds in the subset. If you look at funds that were north of $500 million in size, only 6.9% returned over a 5X where if you look at $250 and below funds, that number jumped up near 12%, so almost a doubling. And if you look at the extreme upside side of north of 20x, zero, $500 million funds were able to get a 20x. So if you are willing to take on the volatility and risk of smaller managers, yes, the upside can be almost uncapped.
0: This brings up a really interesting nuance in venture is that Generally, the larger LPs have more trouble allocating to smaller funds because they can't be so large as a percentage of that funds AUM from a risk perspective. There's challenges there. There's workarounds there too, right? There's fund of funds for a reason. There's different ways of accessing smaller managers. I want to get to two things that you touch on here. One is about the fund size paradox. So obviously, we just talked about how smaller funds can produce better returns on one hand, but... Since there's more dollars going into venture and the larger LPs, they need to allocate to a certain place. They're generally going to the larger funds. You mentioned alpha versus beta. Sure, I think we can put aside the conversation of venture being an alpha generating activity relative to other aspects of the market, like public markets. Putting that aside, if we go one step further into just private markets, into just venture, Do you think we'll see a world where there's beta in venture and then there's alpha in venture and that's okay? So as some of these bigger funds get bigger, then big institutions may just invest in these very large funds and be fine with getting beta, maybe a 2X, maybe it's not a 5X, 10X, but it's a 2X. They'll get their 15 to 20 plus percent IRR and they'll be happy with that. Is that where you see venture going when you say kind of alpha versus beta?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. So investing in some of these larger funds, as you mentioned, for an institution that's managing five, $10 billion, the actual work of diligencing a manager, whether it's a small manager or a large manager, is often interesting because a smaller manager might take much longer to diligence and the check they can write into a big manager and park $100 million into or $50 million every couple of years. It's not just the size of their balance sheets, but it's also the time. Do you really have the time to look at those 2,300 emerging managers and pick three or four? And if you invest, let's say 5 million per, it just doesn't move the needle. So I do think that there's this aspect within the venture market, which has stratified where the smaller manager- managers are kind of an alpha seeking strategy, where you are looking at that extreme upside potential. And then on the large brand name firms or platform managers, as we often call them, you can get quality beta. And quality beta actually can provide a rate of return that is actually meaningful for somebody's portfolio, whether you're an institution, family office, or even a high net worth individual as part of diversifying an overall portfolio. The other thing I'd mention, though, that does present a challenge for a lot of institutions is we are seeing a changing of the guard in the venture market. There are firms that have been around 20, 30, 40, 50 years that are going to continue to struggle and have to figure out generational succession. The ones that do it well will continue to be big brand names, but there are a lot of partners that are retiring. And we've seen that over the last several years. And many of them are starting their new firms, where you have younger partners that are departing to start their new firms. And some of these firms may be the future blue chip firms. And so the challenge for institutions is how do you find those? Because you don't get into fund one or fund two. You may not be able to get a seat at the table for a fund three or fund four. And that's innate. And so a firm that starts off with an alpha seeking strategy because it's up a two fifty million fund may actually grow to it in the quality beta world when they raise a billion plus over time, if that's their strategy.
0: What are the ways in which the LP community, whether it's institutions or the high net worth channel, sure, they may have their different challenges. In terms of how they access some of these smaller managers, but what are the ways in which they can do that?
1: Let's first talk about points of stability. So, Frank Rodman, QED, who I think is probably one of the most thoughtful minds when it comes to venture, he put out a blog, I think it was a blog recently, that talked about points of stability in venture. And he had four areas it was growth, blue chip platforms, non consensus niche, meaning that you are investing in a particular sector or you have a point of view on something that you have an asymmetric edge or solo GPs. And the thought around solo GPs were that they are basically able to be much more nimble in terms of their decision-making. They don't have a huge partnership, no politics. And we've seen people grow as great solo GPs and perform extremely well. So as a LP, I think the first thing you have to look at is what is your risk return tolerance? What are you trying to achieve with your venture portfolio? And then within that, there are going to be certain areas that are just harder to access. If I go to a blue chip firm and say, I want to put in 100,000, well, it's unlikely that I'm going to get exposure to that blue chip fund. So I have to think about where my fit will be within the venture market as a person, as a firm, and then determine where do I want to play within those points of stability and who are the managers that I need to select as part of a portfolio building exercise.
0: I think that's a really interesting way to break things down. There's different parts of the venture market that may make sense for different people to access based on their risk tolerance, based on their amount they're able to invest from a minimum investment perspective. The other piece of that though is fees. And in two ways, one is when there are access points, there's obviously multiple layer of fees. That's why I think the fund of funds model is changing a bit in various ways. And then you also have net of fees. Some managers charge very high fees. And I think at the end of the day, what we're all in this for as LPs is net of fees. What's the return? Heck, you could, in certain cases, invest in public markets, invest in a Vanguard product, and pay nine basis points or so. That may, in certain cases, be better than investing into something in private markets. Not always, but sometimes. So how should people be thinking about that aspect of things, because there are times when it makes sense to pay fees, and then there are times when it may not.
1: I often don't love the fee conversation because ultimately, what you're really underwriting to is net returns. At the end of the day, what is the net return? And I'd happily pay a high fee to somebody if my net return is providing me in venture, for example, that makes up for the risk and a liquidity premium, and. Accounts for the fact that I have opportunity costs. So if I invest in one vehicle, I may not be able to invest in another one. The core is when you're underwriting against a particular fund manager. And some fund managers are two and thirty, some are two and twenty, some are even two and a half. In some certain cases, what you're really underwriting to is net of those fees being instituted. What is the absolute net return that I can expect out of this investment, and then make the determination of if it makes sense in the portfolio. So. You're right. There are the fund of funds. So if I invest in a fund of funds that's charging me 1% plus 5% on top of the manager, it's less about me having the calculus of a fee on its own as a philosophical matter. It's more of a function of if I account for these two layers of fees, what is my network turn going to be? And can this particular fund of fund manager offer me a portfolio that is substantially better than what I can do myself? And if the answer is yes, I'm happy to pay that fee because I'm looking at the overall net return, but I'm
0: also looking at my time. Yeah, I think that's a it's a fair distinction because I think people need access to innovation and the venture and tech world is where innovation happens. There are certain cases where it makes sense to pay fees, for sure. I think this also then gets into a really interesting conversation about the business building side of venture because while people may not think of it in the same way as an entrepreneur, Fund managers are founders, too, and they're business builders. And the likes of those who've built large asset management platforms, they've built incredible businesses. They're very, very large businesses that are driven by, one, size, which is AUM, and two, returns. If we think about VC, it feels like seeing the evolution of VC from smaller funds, single-threaded expertise, to now platforms whether it's Andreessen's, which almost have a portfolio manager approach. Like they have specialists in fintech, specialists in biotech, specialists in consumer. They're almost taking the multi-strat hedge fund model of we're going to have PMs in every category. I don't know if they think of it like this, but this is how I've conceptualized it. And they... I've built a platform that's amassed 50-plus billion of AUM. You then see firms like Thrive just sell a share of their GP stake because they built a platform, 15 billion of AUM, that could continue to increase over time. What do you think the the platformization of VC, kind of like private equity went through, right? Blackstone's 800 billion of AUM. They're private credit, private equity, hedge fund seeding, you name it. They have a growth fund now too. Venture seems to be going through that same evolution. So, How do you think about venture from a business building perspective? Because that may compete with, to some extent, the returns conversation. If you get to $50 of AUM, you can generate beta in venture, but that's fine from a business building perspective. Some LPs might be okay with it too. But that creates this interesting barbell effect of there's going to be the platforms of the world, and they're building certain kinds of businesses, and then there's going to be the small managers, small funds, focus on returns but they're not going to have as large businesses from an enterprise value perspective when it comes to AUM.
1: And you brought up Blackstone, which is a great example. And Blackstone, a massive sort of AUM manager, multi-product, multi-strategy, in fact. Interesting about Blackstone is they've said publicly that 50% of their LP base ultimately will be through the private wealth sector, which we'll get to in later in this conversation. But I think all of this is part of this two-decade trend that we've seen. So Going back to the late 90s, early 2000s, the time for a technology company to stay private, the median was less than five years. So you were seeing companies go public very, very quickly. And much of the alpha for many of these companies was still early in the development cycle when they were going public. Now, the average continues to go up. I think if you look at the average now for time of first funding to IPO, over eight years. And what you basically have seen is the number of public companies effectively half. It peaked at over 8,000 companies. Now it's about 4,000 public companies. And so the continuum of investing in private companies and technologies has expanded. With that, the definition of venture capital has expanded. It used to be the case that venture capital, when you thought about it, was investing at the early stages of companies typically in the first or second series. And even when they did go through an acquisition, the companies were still fairly immature in status. And today, we saw a company like Figma get acquired for $20 before going through a, a public offering. So when you look at big platforms investing in private technology, it's because there are more private companies. These private companies are much larger before they even look at public offerings. And as a platform, you can play the AUM game, get that quality beta, and actually provide the type of returns for a certain type of LP.
0: On that point, how much of building a platform is driven by what's now needed to help companies in private markets?
1: And I think you brought up one firm in particular that has done a great job in building an extremely large team at the end of the day, they're going to see almost every single company. And in order to win at scale, meaning that you have to get large dollars into these companies across various rounds, you are number one, going to have to provide a level of product that is non-commoditized relative to competitors, meaning that how are you helping those companies alter their outcomes as they grow? There's this old adage in venture of how can I be helpful? It's been joked upon on Twitter. So you'll go on Twitter and people always make fun of it. And it's actually true. I mean, it's very difficult for venture investors to truly add value to founders consistently, especially when you have bigger and bigger portfolios. And it can't just be an investment team. If you're an investment team of three people and you have 800 portfolio companies across many funds that have now scaled, you really have to have a set of people that are experts in areas that matter for a particular company at any given time. So The platformization of venture is something that, along with some of the other sectors that we talked about, private equity, was just part of the natural evolution.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think about what this means for a venture manager and the skill sets they need, whether you're a smaller manager or a larger one. The larger ones have the ability, because they have the dollars from the AUM, to go and spend and hire 100 people, which can be incredibly powerful. Because you're able to help companies accelerate their growth. And if you are in the business of outlier returns, that's what you want to do. And you want to pile your resources and effort and time into helping those companies become a $20 billion outcome instead of a $5 billion outcome, because that moves the needle so much in the context of the power law dynamics of it. But really makes me wonder what is the way to have success as a venture fund manager? And maybe the answer is there are host a different ways you can, whether you're a sector expert, whether you're a branding and distribution expert, you have content, there's tons of different ways to be a venture capitalist now. Do you think that there's a certain set of table stakes that are required to be a good venture manager that's going to differentiate you?
1: The one thing I've learned in venture is there's many ways to make money. There's probably even more ways to not do well as a venture manager going back to the former point of is there a certain set formula in order to assess the probability of a particular venture firm's ability to perform alpha or at least at the high level of quality beta i really think it depends on one factor and it's really the gp team and their alignment with the thesis that they're executed upon so For example, do they have some kind of asymmetric edge in what they're actually doing? So you can talk about the big brands. They're big brands for a reason. A lot of people, a lot of service area. Everybody knows about them. Everyone knows where to find them. They have signal that they can provide entrepreneurs. But as you go to like the smaller managers, it becomes more, are you playing in the right swim lane? Have you constructed a strategy? And going back to someone like Mike Maples, your fund size is your business model. Are you playing in the right place and have you gone too big? Are you too small to be able to execute? So I think it really comes down to where are you competing and why are you uniquely positioned to compete in the certain area that you are? And that's what I think it really comes down to. I don't think there's like, oh, you have to have a platform or you have to have 800,000 followers on Twitter or anything like that. I think all of those things are on the periphery, but if you're not playing in the right sandbox, you're not going to win consistently.
0: On that point, it feels like so many VCs feel they need to have some form of brand or content distribution as a way to attract founders, as a way to win deals and then work with founders. There's been some very successful cases of this. The way I like to conceptualize this question is if Benchmark, one of the best managers in history, persistently over time, over multiple vintages, generally $400 million fund, five partners. Really, only GPs, and those GPs deal with the companies directly. If they were to start today with the way that they've operated their firm, I believe their website has nothing on it, no portfolio companies. They're very quiet on social for the most part. Sure, certain partners have built out their own brands and followings, and they're just focused on helping their companies. Do you think they'd be successful today? If they were just starting out? Of
1: course, you pick one of the most successful franchises of the past two decades here. In benchmark, but putting that aside for a second, I do think that a firm, if it has the right partner set, can be successful without a robust content distribution strategy, so long as the GPs have a unique set of skills and strengths that map back to whatever thesis. Now, if the question is, does content distribution matter? I think it's hard pressed for anybody to say it doesn't matter in any way. Similar to a company buying Facebook ads or building a brand by marketing, I think in the early days, getting your brand out, understanding what it stands for is actually quite important for firms, especially in the early days when the firm brand often maps back to the individual's brand. And we've seen people be very successful in get their, getting their worldviews out there, not just, hey, we're open for business and here's what we're investing in, but rather, here's how I think about the world which creates a nice pattern of self-selection of founders that if the GP says something that lands with them, they can reach out. They understand what might or might not fit for that GP. And ultimately, while it may create some top of the funnel noise, I do think the benefits probably outweigh the cons.
0: We've definitely reached more founders in the alt space as a result of having a brand in the alt space. And we had companies that we invested in. You know, I worked at iCapital as an early employee there. We were early invested in Carta, things like that, where like we'd already had a brand in alts, but then broadcasting that out via podcast certainly helped from an anecdotal perspective. The other interesting thing there too, is that it also opened up the aperture geographically. So founders from different parts of the world have started to reach out, and I think that is a really interesting aspect, whether it's for us just in general. I think over the past few years, in large part due to COVID, we had to do deals over Zoom as a VC community, and founders had to connect with us over Zoom. It really did open up the aperture for many firms of investing globally, so I do wonder how much something like content, whether it's podcast or content platform or just Twitter, Something as simple as that. You're able to connect with people all over the world. They're able to see your brand. Sure, you may have a top of funnel problem, but you're also made aware of all these really exciting and interesting things happening in different regions of the world you might not have thought about or seen before.
1: Yeah, I I think, look, I mean, I think the top of the funnel issue can be managed and the benefits of actually having a strong, clear brand. So I think if you're building a brand, the one thing that I've seen of brands that actually work where investors have benefited from the one to many approach whether it's a blog, substack, or podcast, or whatever, is having something that's very clear and authentic to them, where it's very definable who this person is, how they think about the world. And you mentioned your podcast, goes Mainstream, as well as the blog that you have. It's very clear what your worldview is. It doesn't matter where I'm sitting. I could be in San Antonio. I could be in Nebraska. I could be in Israel. It doesn't matter. If I'm creating a company around that It's more than likely that I've done some research about what I'm actually doing, who the competitors are, and I come across your blog and I say, hey, this guy, Michael, really knows what he's doing. I want to reach out because I'm raising a round, and he would be the perfect fit for me. There is a lot of benefits, and we've seen some great companies actually being sourced by that social content. And there's people that have raised entire funds through Twitter, through 506C, which allows for public solicitation. So I think it's not just on the entrepreneur side, but it's also being able to attract LPs.
0: I think that's a really interesting point, which is the story you need to tell LPs to be able to say you have an edge. Every LP will ask, what is your edge? How important is brand in that context?
1: I think it's incredibly important. As an LP, you're seeing so many different managers. I will tell you that most LPs are often very quiet on Twitter, but they're listening. They're watching, they're following all the managers. And ultimately what you're trying to do is self-select into people that share some level of alignment of values that you have or a certain worldview you have. Typically, historically, people have always bought from people. And when I say buy, in this case, it would be invest in a fund manager with people that are like them, where it conforms with their own point of view of the world. And so if I hear from a manager and I see their tweets and I say, okay, this person really, is saying things that I think about all the time, I'm much more likely to be positively inclined not only to take a meeting, but to go into that conversation with positive confirmation bias, whereby I hear their pitch and it's very different from somebody that I don't know anything about. And that's what it really is for a lot of folks. They create that confirmation bias from all the content they put out. So when they do take the meeting, the person is positively inclined to take and interpret certain things they're saying in a way that provides buying behavior
0: an interesting dichotomy between we just talked about people who are very public building a brand and there's merit to that i think we discussed some of that let's go to the opposite side which is the data-driven managers how much will data drive venture capital going forward and is that a better way to run a firm than being focused on brand? So I don't think these things are mutually
1: exclusive. You can build a brand and still yet have a nice way to leverage data. And there's a number of firms that right now have built out and spent millions and millions of dollars of building out proprietary data models to be able to either source, identify, and assess portfolio companies. I think on the data side, the thing that is quite interesting about it is there are so many data points that exist now that you can track, for example, consumer companies or enterprise companies, have cohorts around them, do analysis. The way I look at data ultimately is that it provides somebody the ability to take something that is objective in nature. Now, sometimes data does have, of course, biases in it, depending on who's programming it, but it provides somebody with another tool and framework to be able to make better decisions, or at least be able to ask the right questions when they're analyzing a particular opportunity. I don't think it takes away the human element, though. I think it simply augments the human's ability to operate at scale and remove some of the biases that might be inherently invisible to the person or the team.
0: I'm involved with a data-driven fund. I'm a venture partner at Goodwater, and I think there's a lot there that really does work and to your point, removes a lot of biases that make it very powerful. But you start to see correlations too. You realize that oftentimes the best founders tend to be founders of the best run companies and they have the best metrics. So I think it's interesting when you think about what drives what. They're obviously related and this is a people-driven business, but the data is so powerful. And I think we now have the ability to leverage data as an industry in ways that we never did before. The question there is, do you think LPs see that? And if so, is that changing how they're thinking about what funds to allocate to? The short
1: answer is I think people are interested in it. The LPs that I talk to, both institutional and non-institutional, do believe that there's a place where you can create scale of decision-making, sourcing through data, and actually even beyond that, even helping companies. There's somebody that I had on my podcast that actually built a system of collecting basically all of their industry contacts. And when a company needed something, it would curate exactly who in their network could help this particular company with a particular need. So that was very software data-driven based on profiles of the different people in their network. Really interesting. So LPs, I think, see the benefit of, if done correctly, there could be some level of comparative advantage that is driven or some level of a moat that's driven But I don't know that it drives LP behavior from the standpoint of, hey, I'm only going to do this manager if it has a data-driven strategy. Because ultimately, if there's another manager that has a very clear asymmetric edge in terms of the thesis they're executing on, they will still do it. Even if there's no data involved in terms of how they do it. I think it's rare for a VC not to use any data, though, in in today's world.
0: So you do think, though, that the artisanal venture model of small firm, maybe solo GP, not really focused on the data side of things, but really is focused on finding and evaluating people, working with those people who are founders and picking great companies, winning those deals, that can still work. I think it could still work. When you're investing at the very, very early stages, pre-seed,
1: at the end of the day, it becomes a very founder-driven type of decision-making process. Do I believe this founder is uniquely positioned to solve whatever they're doing, knowing that whatever business model they present today is likely going to iterate multiple times and it's going to expand over time. So it's a bet on the jockey in terms of their ability to actually create a category-defining company. Now, I do think that there's ways to leverage perhaps data because you can look at, are there certain characteristics about these founders? And there's a firm basis set that actually does it. They do the founder archetype of, they look at all of these qualities of founders that have done well and they've distilled it down to a data-driven model. Do you have to do that? No, but does it give you some level of unique observation advantage? I think so.
0: I'm smiling because my mind goes to a recent tweet by Sam Lesson from Slow, where he thinks that, like you say, understanding founder psychology and profile is so important, that created a fascinating Twitter thread of, well, should... VCs, particularly at early stages, be doing psychological assessments. He went that far and said that. Some people said they believed in it. Some people were violently against it. Do you think we'll get to a point where founders will be required to do psychological assessments? Because at the end of the day, early stage, to your point, you're betting on a person or a set of people. I think it'd be really tough to force a founder to do
1: that, especially when your competitors are out. Unless the entire industry conforms to this understanding of we are going to do a psychological assessment of every single founder before we invest. It's not going to happen. And you're always going to have people that say, no, I don't think that's the right way to do it. Therefore, it's not going to happen. Now, you can do psychological assessments in different ways, like I mentioned this firm that does it by collecting these different data points and then applying it to their own sort of heuristic knowledge of the individual and their conversation with the individual. But human psychology is it is so meaningful in terms of determining whether a founder is likely to be successful. Some of the best founders actually aren't successful multiple times before they finally become successful. And I was talking to one of our venture managers and one of their biggest companies was somebody that never started a company, was a dentist before. It was somebody of was in their 40s and that wouldn't be the archetype of like, oh my God, this founder is gonna create a billion dollar company. But there are other examples of this. There are other examples of this that, relate to sort of the psychological profile of what drives somebody. When I've invested in companies in the past, I've indexed heavily on, do I think this person will run through any wall to solve this problem? And and do they have this innate level of grit and hustle? And do they have a chip on their shoulder from something? And I've found that the people that do have that have actually done really
0: well. It's interesting you talk about this because I think that the same way in which VCs evaluate founders. The same can be said for LPs evaluating VCs. And I really want to get to the VC fundraising market and how that's changing. So how in your mind is the VC fundraising market changing? In terms of funds? In terms of how LPs are thinking about investing in the space. And on the other side, how do VCs have to think about now the different types of LPs that they can work with?
1: Great questions. Obviously the fundraising market has become much, much more difficult, especially for one subset of the market, which is emerging managers. For them, their primary capital base is non-institutional. It's not the endowments, foundations, pensions. It's more likely the family offices, high net worth individuals. I think right now there's two things that are happening. Number one, there is a little bit of a sense of fear that has permeated throughout the entire market where people don't know what's going to happen. Candidly, people feel appreciably poorer than they did a couple years ago when their crypto holdings, their public stock holdings were way up. So, we have seen people often, in many cases, completely pause from making new venture allocations, which is actually counterintuitive because you should actually invest when things are more sober and you should slow down when things become overheated. But that's not how human psychology and markets work because ultimately you develop a level of FOMO at the tail end of these markets. Now, I think there's two categories where people that are raising venture funds can tap. So historically, it has been the endowments, the foundations, the pensions. The challenge I think a lot of them are facing is there's not a new pension, there's not a new endowment, a new foundation forming every single day, right? So you have a limited universe. Many of them have built large alternative asset books already. And within venture, they have continued to grow their venture books to a point where when you have public market drawdowns like we saw in 2022, they become significantly over-allocated to an asset category. What we've seen over the past year is many of those people have either cut back the allocations they're making to firms, even firms they've backed from multiple vintages because they simply can't do any more. The second thing is many of them realize that there's other alternatives to invest in now. So you look at the private credit market the private credit market is substantially more attractive than it was because you look at the increase in rates and what that does so for the spreads are still there the credit market is tightening in terms of underwriting standards so the opportunity cost of investing in venture becomes higher and so we are going to see a slowdown that's going to represent in the numbers in 2023 we're not going to see 150 billion raised in 2023 as we did in 22 and 21 because of the institutional pullback however There's this other category you know well and I know well, which is the private wealth sector. And if you think about the number of independent REAs, the private banks, the wirehouses, if you look at the average client that exists within, they're qualified, they're QPs or they're accredited investors. Typically, their venture holdings is less than 2% of their overall assets. So if you look at what could happen, even a small percentage change, one to 2% could actually fund the entire venture market. That's an area where there's substantial opportunity. The issue is the friction of going and finding these people and actually working with all of these disparate groups to raise capital. That's why people tend to rely on institutional shops.
0: So I'm going to lay out framework that has been the case in the past. Don't know if it'll be the case in the future, but the data shows that investing in the top venture funds is how you generate the best returns. There's a small subset of funds that generally tend to generate the best returns. Those are either the biggest brands, like you say. And in some cases there's that smaller fund, first time manager, emerging manager in the outlier case that produces a 300 X. And there's a number of managers, you know, who are in that category of incredible emerging managers, which again are hard to find. But if we stick with the, the brand name bucket, the names we all know, the hardest funds to get into constantly oversubscribe whenever they go out to raise. Oftentimes, they don't even have to go out to raise because their fundraise is already done by the time they go to market again because they have LPs re-upping and re-upping. That's been the case in the past. Now, like you say, there's a world where the denominator effect is impacting institutions, and they're pulling back on their allocations to venture and private markets more broadly because they're overexposed to private markets relative to public markets. Then you have this community of investors, the high net worth channel, that is under allocated to venture and wants access. Do you think that the top VCs need to think about having different types of LPs going forward if they want to continue to build their businesses and raise new funds?
1: Yes. I don't think there's any question about it. If you look at the size of the capital base that is non-institutional, it actually exceeded in 2021 the total assets managed by institutional capital. So if you are on one hand looking at one capital base that, by the way, is over-allocated or, or fully allocated to things like venture capital. And you look at another asset base that actually is larger, but yet under-allocated, it's hard to make the case that you should ignore the private wealth sector. Now, the, the question is, why is this the case? Well, you know, Venture, remember, was a $30 billion a year type of business in terms of venture funds raised. While we may not hit $150 billion, What we'll see consistently within, let's say, the broader definition of venture is close to $80 to $120 billion a year. And as you have some firms that are now moving into the 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 billion, I don't think you can scale without looking at alternative sources of capital. Now, the question is, how do you do it scalably? You see Blackstone. Well, Blackstone actually has a huge investor relationship team that just focuses on the private wealth sector. Traditional venture funds may have one person in IR. Well, that's a very, very difficult thing because the amount of education you have to provide to the private wealth sector, who are, in many cases, very new to the asset category. In order for this to happen, it's education, it's information, and creating on-ramps to easily be able to not only access that channel, but to manage the capital from these smaller checks that aren't $10 million, but might be 250000 per investor.
0: What's the playbook for these large venture firms to do that? Because they don't want to spend a lot of time necessarily finding this new channel because they'd have to go and figure out how to navigate it. They'd have to then round up these smaller investors. How do they go and do that? You're
1: teeing up a very obvious answer, which is why Allocate exists in providing highly curated top managers an easier way and a frictionless way to access the private wealth sector. We are doing the curation, we're doing the diligence, we're providing those. And investors, which typically are the RAA firms with information education about the market. And we provide the administration of all of those smaller checks. You're describing precisely the issue that we saw that catalyzed and inspired the company back in 2021.
0: And then ultimately you can round up enough size and scale where presumably the funds look at you as almost like another institutional LP in size and scale, just with a different LP source.
1: Yeah, that's completely correct. And at the end of the day, we view it as the institutionalization of the private wealth sector.
0: Blackstone said this, I believe, four or five years ago. I believe they said they want 50% of their LP assets to come from the high net worth channel. I think they're getting close. And to your point, they have a 200 plus person team that's out working with the high net worth channel to do that. What's your prediction for venture fund LP composition five years from now?
1: Well, it depends on what part of the venture market you're referring to. If we think about, for example, emerging managers, fund one, fund two, likely it's going to be still a huge part of their LP base being non-institutional. And I forget the exact number, but what we found of fund ones a few years ago, was like 60, 70% of the capital on average was non-institutional. If we look at the bigger firms where the majority of capital historically has come from institutions, 90 plus percent, I think that's where we're going to see the most significant change. Bain came out with a report that said only 14 percent of LP capital going into large firms was non-institutional in nature, probably much lower when you account for venture capital versus private equity. If we look at a five-year horizon thinking out to 2028, I think that number is likely closer to 20 to 25% versus the sub-10% that it is right now.
0: That would be incredibly exciting for the venture space. be incredibly exciting for LPs, too, because they now have access to an asset class they haven't historically had access to, which I think is really important on-ramp, like you say. I want to wrap by doing a few quick fire questions. I think it'd be fun for both of us to answer these questions too. I'll I'll pose some questions. So I think they really get into the future of venture. So past cycles in venture, we saw evolutions of the space. Emergence of micro funds, nano VCs, you've covered that extensively when you were at First Republic. Emerging managers, emerging manager fund of funds, SPVs. What's the innovative product or Construct that will be built in this current time period of a market that's changing.
1: So there haven't been that many real innovations in venture over the last twenty years. I think we've probably seen more of the last decade, as you mentioned, with things like studio models, incubation models, SPVs—you know, deal by deal SPVs, platforms like AngelList. I think on a go-forward basis, we're going to see more platforms emerge that allow. Non-institutional investors to be able to access in a way that's highly curated and personalized so that's number one. I think the second thing that we'll see is we will see more options for liquidity within fund investing. One of the issues with venture is, okay, I invest in a great fund, but it could be 14 years before I see my last dollar or 16 years. The secondary market right now is not a highly traded part of the industry. My estimation for the next decade or so is we're going to see more on-ramps for creating liquidity in highly illiquid asset classes like venture.
0: I think we're going to see private equity platforms add venture to what they do. And then that's going to create two things. One, it's going to create more options for companies to finance themselves over Various ways and potentially stay private longer. You look at like Vista, which has come down market to growth. They're a private equity fund software, but has gone down to growth. They have a credit fund too. They're going to find ways to finance these companies and enable them to stay private longer. And then to your point, I think that dovetails really well with the need to create liquidity solutions in private markets. I think those two things will come together. So you're going to see private equity firms come downstream. I think you're going to see venture firms that are big enough continue to go upstream and build out platforms where they offer multiple strategy to products. Because if we think about what both the institutional channel, over time, the trend has been, they want to call the number of managers they have. They want to have less manager relationships, but do more with them. I think like you saw with private equity, Blackstone could offer a menu of products, private equity, private credit, hedge fund, seeding strategy, et cetera. I think institutions will want to have less relate manager relationships. The private wealth channel as well. It's easier for wealth community. Yeah, and I think we're already seeing some of those things happen right now. We are for sure. I think it's going to become more formalized like we've seen in private equity. I think venture is going to undergo that and become like private equity at the high end. I think the barbell will be the emerging manager side will be very different. Next question. Who wins the next decade of VC, specialists or generalists?
1: I think it's really hard to win as a generalist strategy unless you're one of the big brand platforms that has significant edges when it comes to talent, capital, and brand. So I do think that if you're a micro VC or even if you're a mid-sized firm, being a pure generalist is gonna be very difficult because your competitive landscape is gonna be so difficult that if you don't have some level of advantage within a certain area, and it doesn't have to be sector. But it's a point of view on something where you can be the best in the world on. So I'm not overly bullish or sanguine on pure generalists, unless you're one of the big brands. So for me, it's completely specialist focus going forward.
0: I agree. I think specialists are going to win two reasons. One is because they have an area of expertise and a brand so they can better evaluate, they can better pick, they can better win, and they can better help companies. I think the other reason why specialists are going to win is because markets have gotten bigger and the aperture for what a certain sector looks like has widened because of things. I'll just talk about fintech as an example. Embedded fintech has enabled non-fintech companies to embed financial services products. We've invested in a few of these companies and some of these companies are some of the larger companies in our portfolio. And I think that creates more shots on goal for venture funds to win. If you think about it, it is a game of math. There's only a certain number of billion-dollar companies that are created in any given vintage year. If you're only doing fintech, but that's just digital banking or capital markets, you're only going to have a certain number of companies in any given year that you're going to have a chance to hit on as a billion-dollar outcome. If you're able to widen your aperture, you then have more shots on goal, which give you a chance to have more billion-dollar outcomes. So I think the market's evolved in that way. But then also, I think technology innovation has made it possible for that to happen. Totally agree. 100%. Crypto was like the next big thing. Web3 was going to change the world. Now AI is taking everybody by storm. What are the trends? What is the trend or the trends that are going to be the things that we look back five years from now and say, wow, this has changed the world.
1: Just going back in history, you've always had innovations that have created cycles and technology cycles where you basically have a platform where other companies are built upon, going back to mainframe computing, personal computing, the internet, then mobile cloud. And we've kind of been searching for the next one. I still think that we're still in the early days of everything moving to the cloud and sort of the long-term impacts. AI and just more generally data, all the data that's in the cloud and how that can be harnessed to actually create companies on top of, I think are really interesting. So it's very possible that the AI plus ML and slash just data, the amount of data points that we have to actually create value from a company standpoint, I think could be the next sort of decade of real growth. It's too early to tell.
0: I agree. I think It's hard to ignore generative AI and what it can do to create efficiencies for company builders or even venture funds in some ways in terms of finding, researching, putting out information, customer service, things like that. I'm going to go with climate. I think that the climate tech space has reached a tipping point in a number of ways, one where Just like the internet is now everything, every company has to be a tech company or interacts with tech in a certain way. I think every company has to think about their interaction with the impacts of climate change. There's now solutions that are being created to service companies and people across the spectrum. I think it's hard to ignore that. And then you also have the tailwind of so much dollars being pumped into the space by government that should only help accelerate it. It obviously didn't totally work in 08, 09, but I also think that technology wasn't there, and that was more of a hardware revolution. This is, to some extent, more of a software revolution.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought up climate because I do agree in the size and scale that the industry can become over the next decade. An area that we haven't talked too much about is also healthcare and what we've seen in drug discovery and bio just more generally. Some of the advances that we have seen from some of the managers who have backed some of these companies, it's just astonishing to see how much has changed. And it's another area, I think, when you couple it with things like climate, AI, ML, just more generally, these are huge tailwinds to create that next cycle of growth within the innovation economy.
0: And it could actually provide a very good rationale for having larger funds to do that, because these are such massive opportunities. And some of these things need to be funded at scale. That's, I think, one of the biggest lessons, at least that I've learned in venture, is that we often underestimate how big markets and market sizes can be. And that's where you really tend to get outsized returns. So final question. This will be a fun one. What's the next big VC meme? (laughs) That's,
1: (laughs) that's That's a great one. Why don't you start with that one? I'm going to be a little bit careful on that question, but I'd love to hear your view on what do you think the big VC meme is?
0: I think we've gone from let me know how I can be helpful to AI can be helpful. So I think ChatGPT is going to raise a VC fund at some point, or at least that'll be the meme that
1: is created. (laughs) You know, like I, I think you're right. Venture has always looked at certain areas of momentum and you have overfunding. Everybody talks about it. And you will have, I think over the next year, about 8,000 experts in the world of AI. I'm sure we'll see a lot on Twitter on that, but uh, I don't think I have one on my own that I can think of on the spot here.
0: Well, I'm excited to see the VC memes because that always provides some nice laughs in the middle of scrolling through Twitter. (laughs) There you go. Awesome. Well, this was great. This was a ton of fun, covered a lot of ground adventure. Always a pleasure having you on Samir.
1: Yeah, it's been a lot of fun, Michael, and really excited about this pod. And I feel like there are so many things that we didn't cover that we could have covered. One last thing I wanted to talk about is sort of a prediction about venture going forward that I just thought of. I do think over the next 10 years, you will see one or two venture funds go public.
0: I think you're right. It'll be interesting to see if they will go public themselves and want to build a standalone. Or if they will get acquired by a private equity fund and become part of a publicly traded private equity fund platform and be public in that respect. But it is a really interesting point, and I think an important one, because that provides yet another way for anyone to get access to this asset class. If VC fund platform goes public, any investor can buy it in the public markets. Now, different type of return stream, different type of risk, different type of exposure but still very innovative in the sense that it's providing exposure to investors to this asset class. Agreed. Well, Michael, thanks so much for having me on. And this
1: was a really fun conversation.
0: Likewise. This was awesome, Samir. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alt Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites. And you can read more about alts at my substack, .substack altgoesmainstream.substack.com. And follow me on Twitter at at Michael and at Gozalt. Thanks a lot and have a great day. We're going-